ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We welcome you to Gospel Dynamite, a Christian broadcast dedicated to the salvation of the lost and the revival of God's people. I'm Alan Mashburn, your Bible teacher and the pastor of Asbury Baptist Church, located at 218 Asbury Church Road in Seagrove, North Carolina. We invite you to visit our church at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. On Sunday evenings, we provide online services which can be viewed on gospeldynamite.org. Now please join me in the study of the Word of God. You're listening to Gospel Dynamite. Thank you for joining us. I invite you to take your Bible, turn with us to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, as we look at the Church of Philadelphia, or the Church of the Open Door. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. The Bible reads, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We are continuing to move through the letters of our Lord to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Thus far, we've covered five of the seven churches. And in addition, I want to remind everyone that these letters can be viewed from three distinct and different perspectives First, they can be viewed practically. These letters were written to real churches that are functioning in this day. Prophetically, these churches represent different periods of church history from Pentecost to the rapture. And during this period, the true Christian churches, though weak numerically, financially, began the modern movement of missions. This was also the period that saw the great awakenings and the revivals in America and Britain. But lastly, it can be viewed personally. These churches have something to say to every believer, to every church in existence. Today, we consider the church in Philadelphia the church of the open door. Now, just a little bit of history about Philadelphia. It was the youngest and the smallest of all the cities addressed here in these letters. The city was located in a narrow pass between two mountain ranges, 
and it stood as a literal doorway between Asia Minor and Asia. Because of its strategic location, it was used as a military buffer city. Enemy armies passing through the narrow pass could be delayed by a small force here at Philadelphia. The city was named by the King Attalus II, the king of Pergamum, and he was renowned for his love of his brother, Eumenes, and he came to be called Philadelphios. Now, the word means one who loves his brother. Thus, Philadelphia became known as the city of brotherly love. Now, Philadelphia was built on a geological fault. As a result, the city was plagued by frequent earthquakes and tremors. The citizens were often forced to flee the city to avoid being injured or killed by falling structures. Philadelphia was also home to numerous temples dissecated to the gods and goddesses of ancient Greece. Philadelphia was the last of the seven cities to lose its Christian testimony. There was a thriving Christian community there as late as 1000 AD when the city was captured by the Muslim armies of the Middle East. Now it is to this church in Philadelphia that Jesus speaks in these verses and he comes to them with absolutely no words of complaint. He comes to them with words of praise and words of promise. And I think the Lord's words to this weak but faithful church have much to say about our hearts as well today. Now if we're going to model ourselves after any of these seven churches, in all reality it should be this church. Notice with me in verses 7 and 8, we see the church and her master. Jesus comes to this church and he identifies himself in two powerful ways. He comes as the sinless one. The word holy tells us that Jesus is sinless and pure. And that's the Bible's testimony of Jesus all throughout the scripture, 1 Peter 2.22, Hebrews 7.25. That's hell's testimony of Jesus, Mark chapter 1 and verse 24. That's heaven's testimony to Jesus, Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And that was Jesus' own testimony to himself. For he said in John 8 and verse 46, Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? His question, by the way, in that passage never has been answered. Jesus is speaking to a church that is striving to be holy in the midst of a corrupt and sinful world. He comes to say to them, it is possible to live for God. I am holy, and I can help you be holy as well. And that is a word of encouragement that we all need from time to time. This world is against us. And sin and Satan are pressing us in every side. Jesus has the power to help us to live the holy lives he desires us to live. But not only does he come as the sinless one, he comes as the sincere one. The word true here means to uh, be that which is genuine. We know that his word is true. And now he tells his people that he is the real Savior. He is the only genuine Lord. 
These early believers were surrounded daily by that which was false. False gods and false worship abounded every day around them. And Jesus wants them to know that he is the real deal. They're not wasting time. They're not wasting their lives serving him. They did not make a mistake when they turned their back on their idols and pagan gods. And when they came to Jesus Christ, they came to the only Savior. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You realize we live in a day where many things are mere imitations. We have sugar substitutes, salt substitutes. We even now have meat substitutes. We have uh, fake leather, fake fur. We have renodates, virtual reality, surrogate mothers. We're surrounded by that which is fake and pretend. And it is a comfort to be reminded that at least one thing is real. Jesus Christ is the real deal. He is not a substitute for anything. He is the real Savior. He's the only Savior. And when you trusted Christ, you got in on something that is real. Salvation is real. Prayer is real. Grace is real. Heaven is real. His presence is real. His word is real. His power is real. I'm saying this, Jesus, not Coca-Cola, Jesus Christ is the real thing. The Lord chose his authority to this church. Jesus identifies himself as the one who is in control. He has the keys and he opens and closes the doors. That'd be a very important point for us to learn. He carries the keys. Jesus says that he has the key of David. For sake of time, I'm not able to go to Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 25. But I encourage you to read that on your own time. This passage in Isaiah 22 speaks of a man named Eliakim. This is an Old Testament prophecy that the glory of God, the power of God, and the authority of God will rest on his shoulders. They were told that he will be set as a nail in a sure place and that he will be cut off after a while. The ancient prophecy is a picture of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God placed on his son his kingdom and his government, Isaiah 9 and verse 6. The Bible says that he has set him as a nail in a sure place, but after a time he was cut off. That's a clear picture of the cross of our Lord. We're told that he will have the key of David. What does this mean? Well, what are keys for? Keys grant you authority, access, availability. Jesus comes to this ancient church and he says, I have the keys. He's telling you today that he has the keys. What kind of keys does my Lord Jesus have? He has the keys of sleep. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18 that he has the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He alone is the master of death. You cannot even die until Jesus Christ opens the door. You can't stay dead if you know him, according to John 11, 25, and 26. 
He not only has that, he has the keys of suffering. Revelation 1 and verse 18. Only he can open heaven. Only he can shut hell. Jesus is the key to heaven. Not only that, he has the keys of salvation. Only he can open the door unto eternal life for those who will come to him. He is the door, and he is the only way to be saved. He has the keys of service. He decides, according to 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9, he decides when we serve, where we serve, and how long we serve. He has the keys of safety, according to Colossians 3 and verse 3. No one can touch those who are locked away within Jesus Christ. And I might I add that he controls the doors. Jesus is in the business of opening and closing doors in the lives of his people. We see this truth at work in the life of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16. When God opens a door of opportunity in your life, run through it as fast as you can. It may be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. How tragic would it be to go to heaven and see what we could have done if only we would have trusted the Lord and stepped through the open door that he gave us? By the same token, when he closes a door, don't try to force it open. You don't want to be where God doesn't want you to be. And the path to blessing is to be where the Lord wants you to be when he wants you to be there. I think there's a word here for the church as well. There'll be times along the way when God lines things up for his church. And he may give us an opportunity to make inroads into our community. He may give us opportunity to be, to be a ministry to our area. When that door comes open... It's uh, not a time to delay. It's a time for faith. It's a time for action. And when we see that door open, we must go through it, regardless of the cost. And we need to pray that God will give us spiritual wisdom to see the doors when he opens those doors. Now, as he does with the other churches, Jesus reminds them that he knows everything about them. He sees their works He sees the motives that drive their work. And as a reminder, he wants us to know that as well. He looks at our lives and at our church, and what does Jesus see about us? In verses 8 through 11, we see the church and her ministry. Keep in mind, Philadelphia was a small church with tremendous potential for the glory of God. And these verses tell us something about their ministry. Verse 8, we see a little bit about their ministry and how they were involved in opportunities. Now, in our Lord's sovereignty, he has given this church a powerful open door of ministry. Jesus says, thou hast a little strength. This may mean that they were small in number, lacking in political, financial influence. They were weak, but the Lord was using them in a mighty fashion. They were weak, but they were making a tremendous impact in their city. Why? because they had kept his word. This means that even though they were weak in many ways, they were pure and strong in their doctrine. Somewhere along the lines years ago, we got the idea that God uh, puts his blessing on a work, and the way we define that is by a quantity, a number that we see, a big church or a big ministry or whatever. Uh, The Lord never told us to go and build big works. He told us to go and and start and to build quality work. 
They kept his word. Not only that, they had not denied his name. They were not ashamed of Jesus or of their relationship to him. And I think this means that they were not keeping the gospel to themselves. They were actively spreading the word of God to a lost and dying world. And God had given them an open door of ministry there in Philadelphia. And they had stepped through it and they were doing what they could. Now, because they were faithful to him, he was blessing them. They were preaching, they were exalting Jesus, and the enemies of the cross were powerless to stop them. Such was the power of God in their midst. And I, say, I think the same principles still apply today. Bible-believing churches are in a minority in our world, and if we honor God's word and keep Jesus at the center of all that we do, the Lord will honor that which he has given us as an open-door ministry in the world. But we have to do what he says here. We must keep his word. That means we are not only to hear it, love it, do it, but share it as well. We must not deny his name. That is, we must not minimize Jesus to draw the crowd. But we must make him the centerpiece of our church and our worship. God blessed that kind of church 2,000 years ago, and there's no indication in the scripture that he's changed. He'll continue to bless those that lift up his name and honor his word. And if we love the book and live the book, if we love Jesus and lift up Jesus, God will use us in this world in ways that we can never imagine. And he opened that door long ago, and it remains open today. In verse 9, the phrase synagogue of Satan probably refers to the local Jews who were persecuting them. The phrase which say they are Jews and are not can be interpreted by what Paul said in Romans 2, 28 and 29. This church is suffering at the hands of people who claim to love God, but they're lying. They have rejected their Messiah and they're headed to hell in Revelation 21 and verse 8. Jesus tells them that he is aware of their mistreatment, but he wants them to know that a day is coming when they will see those who oppose them bowing before them. He's probably referring to that day when every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2, 10 and 11. One day their enemies will experience total defeat. And whatever the Lord is speaking about here, he wants them to know that he's in control of the critics as well. We might as well face this fact. Old-fashioned churches are not as popular as they used to be. There was a day when most churches were good churches. They preached the word. They lived right. They evangelized the lost. They exalted the Lord. That day is long gone. And just because the church has the right name on the sign does not guarantee that you'll find the right kind of church behind the doors. And in our day, old-fashioned churches are going to be ridiculed, maligned, and persecuted. 2 Timothy 3 and 12, John chapter 3 and verse 20. Now, like it or not, we can usually measure the level of our effectiveness by how much criticism we receive. When people talk about your church and make fun of you and your standards, don't worry. 
Respond like Jesus taught us to respond and keep on going and keep on working and keep on praying and keep on trucking along. And remember, there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will have the last word. Vengeance is his jurisdiction and simple obedience is ours. By the way, if I were moving to a new town and start looking for a new church to attend, I would listen to the talk around town. That church that everybody laughs at, criticizes, and mocks is the church I would attend first. Why? Because the world and all that join to it hate the truth, and they hate any church that preaches the truth. In verse 10, we see that their ministry involved optimism. This is a precious promise to a suffering people. They have endured much, but they have been spared the horrors that will come upon the entire world and those who dwell in it. Jesus promises them that their faithfulness will guarantee them their deliverance from the terrible time of tribulation that is to come upon the earth. Now the phrase, them that dwell upon the earth in the text, can be literally translated, the earth dwellers. As you go through the Revelation, you encounter that several more times. It refers to those who are part of the world's evil system, and it speaks of those people who do not know Christ. They will face the wrath of God in the tribulation period, but his people will not. Will the church pass through the tribulation? Absolutely not. Jesus is coming and he is going to remove his church before God pours out his wrath upon the world. You say, do you have scripture to back that up? I certainly do. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 16 through 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 51 and 52. And should you want any more, you have an entire Bible that tells you that Jesus Christ never beats up his bride. He carries his bride home, and he never allows his bride to go through any more condemnation at all because he suffered their hell. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. That is a fact. Now verse 11. Their ministry involved obligations. The believers in Philadelphia are told to be on the lookout for two things. First, they are to be watching for the coming of the Lord. Second, they were to watch their walk. My friend, Jesus is coming and his people need to be ready to meet him. That means we're to live as, as though he might come at any moment, at any minute. We're to work like this is our last time, our last day to do so. But as we watch and as we work, we're to be careful how we live our lives. Don't get caught up in this garbage that you can live as you like if you're a believer, that you can do anything you want that the world does. That's garbage and it's a lie of Satan. We're to live for Christ. We're to love Jesus. We're to look for Jesus. We're to look like Jesus. We're to guard everything he's given us so that we can be confident of a reward when he comes. We will face our Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, and that day can be a day of reward or it can be a day of loss. You determine which it will be for your own self. As he relates to them all, that he's given them and he's doing for them and through them, it is possible that they didn't even know just how much the Lord was blessing them and using them for his glory. Here's what Jesus saw as he looked at the ministry in the church of Philadelphia. 
And I think it's very likely that we don't know the extent of our outreach and the strength of our influence in the world. But I want you to see in verse 12, the church and her message. Jesus closes his letter to this church by giving them a message of hope for the future. And this message is just as valid for us today as it was for the day of Philadelphia. He gives them a message of stability. Jesus tells these believers that he will make them set as a set them as a pillar in God's temple and they will go out no more. That was a message of hope to the to the people of Philadelphia. With all the earthquakes the city suffered, they were used to having to evacuate their city. Now Jesus promises them that they're going to enjoy stability in his kingdom. In that city, the highest honor that could be bestowed, be bestowed on an individual was for a pillar in one of the pagan temples to be dedicated in his honor. His name would be written on it, and the reason for the honor would be inscribed there as well. Well, Jesus is saying to them, you may, may, not, may not be well-known, honored down here, but things are different in heaven. And you might be a nobody here on this earth, but you're going to be a somebody in glory. It's the same for us as well, my friend. This world hates us, the devil hates us, and each day sees the church become the focus of increasing attacks and hatred. But in heaven, we're somebodies. We are the redeemed children of God. We are the spotless, chaste, virgin bride of the Lamb of God, and our names are known over there, and one day they're going to be announced in that glorious city. But also he gave them a message of security. God says that his people will be identified with the Creator, with the city, and with the Christ. God puts his name on them to establish ownership. He has redeemed them, and they're his forever. He places the name of the city on them because that is their destination. They might be living on earth today, but they're headed for glory. He writes a new name for Jesus on them because they're special to him. The name of Christ represents the fullness of his person. And in heaven, they will see Christ in all of his fullness. In the Old Testament era, his name was Jehovah. In the New Testament era, his name is Jesus. In heaven, he will have a new name, and the world might not see their value, but God does, and he honors his faithful servants, and the people in the church of Philadelphia had no security in the city where they lived, but they had eternal security in their relationship with Jesus Christ and in his kingdom. My friend, this verse reminds us of the wonderful security of all the redeemed in Christ have. That we have been saved to the uttermost. Hebrews 7, 25. We've been given everlasting life. John 4, 6 and verse 47. We cannot lose anything that we've been given in Christ. John 10, 28. And God has claimed us as his children, 1 John 3, 1 through 3. He has addressed us for his special delivery to our new home in glory, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And he's placed us in the body of his son, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. We are as secure as anyone can be. And that, my friend, is reason for rejoicing. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. We trust it's been a blessing. Trust you'll have a great week in the Lord. Log on to our website, gospeldynamite.org, and let us know if you've accepted Christ or this message has helped you. God bless you, and we trust you have a great day in the Lord.